We are It's More Than Just a Chant. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums Jared and Ross as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy. Episode 8 of Lion Legacy. So, Ross, last week we had on Andrew Moses, who spoke about his favorite Penn State memory, meeting his wife. Obviously, Andrew is a very, very smart man and saved himself from going in the doghouse. I hope you are equally as smart because I am now going to turn the tables and ask you your favorite Penn State memory. And it would also be meeting my wife. You got to share a little bit more than that now. Oh, of course. So I met my wife, Jessica, who's a big fan of the show 20 years ago, actually more than that at this point, almost 21 years ago. It's been a while. And we actually met freshman year. It was early on in our Penn State tenure. And we both went to a Penn State Hillel, shout out to them, to their ice cream social event. And so I, I went with some friends to the ice cream social and was working the room, if you will. And I met a nice group of young women and everyone was typical, where do you live? And, you know, we live in these halls and this this dorm and that dorm. And so Jessica, who I vividly remember was like the maybe the last of the six or seven girls in that group said, hey, I live in McKean Hall. And wouldn't you know, I also lived in McKean Hall. So there we go. We hit it off because we thank you to the uh, Penn State housing gods. We lived in the same building. So Jessica lived on the fourth floor of McKean. I lived on the first floor of McKean. And also, wouldn't you know that my co-host here, Jared, also lived in McKean. You were on the third floor. Third floor. So it actually turns out that Jessica also befriended Jared. And then I befriended Jessica. And I met Jared through Jessica. And not that long afterwards, I worked up the the nerve to ask Jessica out on a date. And uh, we started dating not that long afterwards. Again, this is all freshman year. So it was a long time ago. And I tell everybody, when you find the right one, you hang on to them. And for me, Jessica was the right one. I thank Penn State every day that they put us in the same dorm building. And so we had that chance encounter. It seems like a lifetime ago, but we dated all throughout college and after college. And it's been a long journey. And here we are all these years later. I'm very happy. I don't know how she tolerates me, but she does. And with two great kids and no complaints. And where'd you go your first date? First date, the first real date, my favorite musician at the time, Dave Matthews Band, a shout out to DMB, was uh, announced a concert at the Bryce Jordan Center. And I had some access to tickets And I remember running up to her room on a Saturday morning. I think she was still half asleep and it was not very graceful at all. I basically like banged on the door, walked in. I was like, I have tickets to Dave Matthews. You have to come with me. And she humored me and said, yes, the rest is history. The rest is history. It's amazing. 20, almost 21 years. And both of you are, are great friends of mine. It's been fun to see and watch you guys grow individually, but then also grow together and have a family. It's just, you know, mind boggling to think that was 21 years ago before we all had cell phones. It's true. We always talk about how Penn State would have been a whole different experience had we had cell phones, social media. Unreal. Know, a whole different Unreal. ball game. But yeah, Jessica's the best. And I, I thank Penn State every day that we met there. Well, we got to get Jess on the show one of these days as well, at least for the intro. And 
make sure I'm hearing what her favorite Penn State memory. Hopefully she'll answer the same exact way that you just answered. <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about our guest this week, my friend? Sure, sure. So this week we spoke with Andrew Weinert, who works for MIT's Lincoln Lab. And he's our drone expert that works with drones every single day, him and his team up there in Boston. And a few things few takeaways from, from our conversation with Andrew, and we learned a little bit about how drones are being used today, how drones are going to become a bigger part of our everyday life, a little sooner than you think that is, and also how regulatory authorities are making sure the drones are safe for travel up in the airspace. So a really cool conversation. Andrew was great. We learned a lot. Drones are more than just a, a toy that you can get from a sharper image, and drones really are going to be part of our everyday life in the future. And with that, Hope we're not droning on. Let's zip into it. All right. Let's welcome Andrew Weinart, Penn State graduating class of 2009 and staff research associate in the Homeland Protection and Air Traffic Control Division at Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Lincoln Laboratory. That is a mouthful. Now, Ross, normally I go into the educational background in the first sentence. But for Andrew, this is a little bit different. So here we go. Andrew holds a BS in security and risk analysis with two minors, information science technology for aerospace engineering and natural science. Now, when I first read that, I thought Andrew must have spent all his time in the library. Well, I was <laughs> completely wrong about that. He was a member of the varsity swim team active member of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics student chapter, and somehow found time to play intramural soccer. I'll also mention he earned his master's degree in electrical and computer engineering from Boston University in 2015, with his thesis focused on applied mathematics and information theory. Man, that is impressive. Welcome, Andrew, to Lion Legacy. Thanks, Jarrett. Thanks, Ross. Great to be here. Excellent. Well, hey, Andrew, so given what I'm sure was a very demanding schedule while you're an undergrad at Penn State, first question, did you actually have a chance to get any sleep? I, I did. Um, I think the my roommates knew that I would disappear sometimes. I mean, we're, oh, he's at lab. And, you know, as long as I was seen within the last 24 hours by somebody, they knew I was safe. Um, so definitely fluid schedules when when needed. Well, that's good. At least you didn't go missing at any point. We'll dive right in. And I know you will, you'll keep it in lay terms for us here. Otherwise, it's certainly above Jared and my head. I know we have a lot of very intelligent listeners out there. So tell us a little bit about some of the work that you're doing with drones in the Homeland Protection and Air Traffic Control Division at MIT. Yeah. So real simply, when we think about rules, regulations, best practices, I help put numbers to them. So we don't want airplanes to get close to each other because when they get close to each other, it's more likely that they'll hit each other and that is bad. And so the question really is, well, how close can say a small drone get to a manned aircraft? How close is bad? How close is worrisome? And then how close is like, well, that's far enough that, you know, it's fine. We don't really care. And so a good chunk of my job is doing a bunch of mathematics, high-performance computing, simulations, and say, well, here's a number. And then we'll go to a standards committee. We'll go to the aviation safety community. 
and we'll throw that number up on the wall and we'll fight over it. We'll iterate over it as standards bodies do. And then we help facilitate that into standards that are then either be adopted by industry to meet regulations or some of the numbers can potentially become regulations themselves. And so I think a good fun part about my job is I get to do both the, the mathematics down in the week technical work, but it doesn't end there. The numbers, like I said, I have to bring them to a larger international community. People throw rocks at them for good. We don't like airplanes crashing with each other. But you have to be able to communicate the both technical and more of that forward-facing political community adoption stuff as well. Very interesting. And I know you certainly are, are at MIT in Boston. I'm actually here in Puerto Rico nowadays, and you've done some work supporting Hurricane Maria's recovery. Can you share some of the work outside of the lab? Yeah. So one thing Lincoln is very proud of is we focus on prototypes and end user design. So we don't just, we're not in an ivory tower. We don't want to just do the math and show, look, we solved this mathematical proof and great. It's really, hey, we did this work, but let's get out into the field. Let's actually make an impact. And so that often involves either uh, field prototyping, where we go at ourselves, or observing other users in the field, working with them hand in hand. So the Puerto Rico uh, is a great example of this, where the laboratory was developing laser radar LIDAR technology. So effectively, uh, you put this sensor on an airplane, and it enables you to 3D map the terrain. And so for things like disasters, this is really great. Because you can say, well, this is a 3D map. This is where a landslide is. And you can actually start figuring out, this is how much Earth was moved, the amount of volume. Or this is the size of the rubble pile. And so we've been developing this technology. I was, at the time, part of our one of our new research groups, the Humanitarian Assistance Disaster uh, Response Group, the Hatter Group. Hurricane Maria happened. Hurricane Florence. Hurricane Harvey happened. And FEMA said, okay, what can you bring to bear? How can you make a tangible impact on this response? And so we formed out the LIDAR system and very quickly it was like, okay, good, thumbs up. And so we went from saying, all right, well, the sensor's in our basement and we need to get an airplane for it. <laughs> and so we ended up, you know, leasing an airplane. It was, the airplane was built over 50 years ago. We packed it up, uh, we flew it down to Puerto Rico and we started the mission there. And our goal was to 3D map all of Puerto Rico in 30 days. So very daunting task. We had to figure out how do we get off this massive amount of data off the island up to, to Massachusetts so we could start processing it. A very kind of technical problem working with huge amounts of data. But on the other hand, we were running into these smaller issues where like, oh yeah, the, there was no interior cabin lights in the airplane. And so they're flying at night and we're like, okay, we gave them flashlights for their head. But like, well, what else? Oh, okay. So then we need to get hooks so they can put their headphones on. Or what if we can string these lights along to help them be more productive? Okay, that airplane is going to take off at 7 p.m. Pre-flight will be at 5 p.m. And so you, you work as much as you can till 5. The flight crew is either sleeping or laying out by the pool. And you sleep in when you can. And we did it. And it was, I can't say it was necessarily fun. It was super rewarding. It was exciting. And we did it. We 3D mapped the entirety of Puerto Rico in 30 days. And the goal is to, you know, 
We built upon that then for a Hurricane Florence relief in the Carolinas later that year, and really trying to best equip FEMA, best equip the, the U.S. on how can we leverage some of this really cool and exciting technology to, to improve how we respond to disasters. Very Fantastic. cool. You interested in airplanes, space travel, things like that when you were a kid? I was. I had the I want to be an astronaut book as a kid. Never went to space camp, but was certainly interested in it. I liked airplanes. And then when I was even applying to colleges, right, I was looking for an aerospace engineering type program, something with aviation. I liked robots. And so I ended up with flying robots and many, many years later, here I am still doing flying robots. Do, do you fly drones or, or planes yourself? And if so, how hard is it for people to learn? In college, 10 plus years ago, flying what we would call drones now was very hard, uh, very manual. And now today, some of the capabilities are like Skynet, where drones can just, you launch it, you can launch it from your hand and it tracks you. I am a part 107 drone license, drone license operator. My wife gets a chuckle because I am registered as the FAA with this. And so when they get emails or letters from them, it's like, dear pilot. <laughs> and I'm actually no pilot. You're a drone would, pilot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't call me that. Like, I get it. But no, I am not a, a general aviation pilot. A few of my friends are. It's something I want to do. We have to eventually buy our house first. And then once we have that, hopefully there'll be some money laying around and I can start getting my GA license. Priorities right there, right? Yeah. So I have to tell you, though, Jared, I actually do have experience trying to learn how to fly a drone, not to Andrew's level, but so my my soon-to-be eight-year-old son had a drone phase just recently, and, and so he coaxed us into buying a fairly inexpensive drone. I guess it was last summer. I think part of the difficulty in learning how to fly this thing was that it was not very well made, but it was fun. It went up and down and it zipped around, but there was many, we probably spent half the time trying to either A, figure out where it went in the neighborhood, B, fish it out of a tree, or C, just generally find it. It was very hard to track. It was fun. And then I think it crash landed one too many times and that was the end of it. User error. Yeah, exactly. So Andrew, I guess just thinking about the practical application of the work that you're doing for us and, and I guess maybe the general consumer, you hear about Amazon strategizing to use drones in the future for delivery service, which yep. seems very futuristic, I'm sure. Share with us what the future looks like in, in terms of drones and unmanned air travel. For drones, some of the future is happening now. And the best technology is the ones that we kind of forget ever exist. So think about like our cell phones, like our cell phones do a ton of things and we take it for granted, but it's part of our everyday life. And when the, it's no longer, wow, you have a smartphone type thing. And I think drones are kind of there, um, not clearly fully, but a lot of the current regs and rules and capabilities, you do see drones being used for things like realty. The real estate sector has really adopted them. You come in, you can see the whole roof, you can see the surrounding neighborhoods. Same thing with insurance companies. Fly a drone down a street after a disaster. Someone's got a, a damaged roof. We don't have to put a man on a ladder at risk. You just pop the drone up, boom, boom, boom. You can fly it around. It's great. You have started seeing, in terms of package delivery, 
there have been companies that have been doing this now for years in Africa, doing blood delivery between hospitals. Now, the regulations of the airspace here in the U.S. is certainly very different um, than most countries in, in Africa. And also, we just have a lot more activity. And so we have to be a much more stringent. A lot of the regulations that we're working on and have been kind of standardized and really in the hands of industry now to start implementing it is leading to package delivery, leading to infrastructure inspection. So a lot of the early drone programs in the U.S. were focused on railway inspections, pipeline inspections, critical infrastructure inspections. So not the sexy, glamorous use case, but we like our roads, bridges, and trains running on time. And so this has been a really great use case for them, especially once you get out into the Midwest, the Rockies, the more sparse areas of the U.S., you go hundreds of miles and you can just put that drone straight over that railway doing inspections. And that it leads to better maintenance, better efficiency, less downtime, more uptime, and all those things. For package delivery, I think it's certainly coming. I would... I expect probably in the next five years, we'll really start seeing it. And I'm really hedging my bet by saying five years. The drone industry has moved incredibly fast. And the aviation industry has certainly been riding along with that. One thing that we often face is safety is good. We really like in the U.S. that our airplanes don't crash into each other, that you can get on an airplane and feel confident that, right, they're not going to crash generally. 787 max with outstanding. But when we even saw that, right, there was two accidents worldwide and they completely grounded the aircraft for over a year. And so there's certainly this kind of push pull of both kind of safety and perception where people want all of these really cool things with package delivery and everything, but the industry is fragile. We saw this with the self-driving car industry, where self-driving cars have a lower accident rate than manned drivers. Every time a self-driving car collides with another car or hits someone, it's front page news. And so while the rate and the aggregate safety is much, much better, the perception of it is in some ways kind of the blocker here. And same thing we're seeing in the drone industry, right? We want to be safe users, but we also want to be good citizens, good users of the national airspace, where if we come in and say, hey, yeah, we're safer than manned aircraft, we can show it. But if that ends up being where we're having drones crash into homes multiple times a year, it's an open question, right? If industry and society will be willing to accept that. And so when we really think about safety, it's not just the raw numbers of safety. It's also how do we get that public perception? How do you get that public trust? Because this industry, as in many industries focused on autonomy, can be sunk very quickly if uh, public trust isn't there. It's a great point right there. And just to go off of that, how is it regulated today? Ross talks about flying a drone, and I imagine he wasn't going too high, but he said it may have crashed into a tree. It may have crashed into a house. How is it being regulated today? Because the average person can go out and buy a drone and, and can fly it. Yeah. So there is in the Federal Register 14 CFR, there is part uh, 107, and that's the drone rule. So if you Google FAA drone rule, hobbyist drone rule, uh, will direct you to that reg or the FAA page that explains it. 
So folks like Ross who are operating as hobbyists, there are very clear rules. It really boils down to don't be an idiot and don't be a hazard to others, along with fly at these certain altitudes, things like that. Don't fly near airports. Be common sense. And a lot of the drone manufacturers in their ground control software will, so most of these drones you can control by your phone these days. A lot of that software, they're baking in these rules. So if you're within five miles of an airport, your drone app will notify you. The FAA has their own drone app to say, hey, before you fly, the before you fly app opens up and look where you are. What are the rules and things like that? So it's actually become very digitized, very app friendly. Now, when we talk about package delivery, that will be a, a different rule. And those rules are in the rulemaking process. Generally, what happens with many of these regulations, and this is not just for aviation, is there will be a federal rule saying you need, need to do this. So you either need to equip this type of system or equivalent, or you need to operate in this such way. Um, and there are then standards bodies, particularly in aviation, there's two or three major ones that say, here's a standard for a piece of technology. And if you are in compliance with this standard, you can go to the FAA and say, I am in um, compliance with your rule. And so it is very much a partnership between um, the public sector and, and government and then folks like myself who are kind of the non-biased, non-profit, here are the numbers type of guys. And we all want to move towards the same systems. I think an example of this, so if you're assuming you guys have flown on aircraft with more than 13 seats over them, Absolutely. Yeah. So there is something called TCAS, the Traffic Collision Avoidance System, Alerting System, TCAS, Traffic Collision Alerting System. And that is the system today that mitigates the chance that you will collide with another aircraft. That system, uh, TCAS, was prototyped by Lincoln Laboratory and MITRE in the um, 70s and 80s. So we, similar to what I was talking about with Puerto Rico earlier, we had a problem, make airplanes hit each other less. <laughs> Figure that out. <laughs> and so we worked on prototypes. So we had to prototype the surveillance system on how to detect other aircraft. They had a prototype. Well, once we detect another aircraft, what do we do? Do we go up, down, left, right? And we have to put it all together. It has to be on an aircraft. And so they prototyped it. They flight test it. They brought that then to the aviation standards communities and say, hey, this is what we got. Let's make a standard out of it. Let's make a minimum operating uh, performance MOPS out of it standard. They went to the FAA. There was more flight tests to say, hey, we did a bunch of computer simulations. We expect this safety. We went out. They flight tested it and said, hey, this is what we observed. Our numbers match up. And then it eventually, in the early 90s, it became a law where con you had to mandate equipage of TCAS in the US. And then that led to a international mandate. With that, I think it's kind of interesting to point out, particularly with aviation, when you fly across the ocean or you fly to Canada, well, you have to abide by both the rules in the US and say you're flying to London, you have to abide the rules in London. And then say that airplane goes from London to then, say, Singapore, Milan, anywhere else. Well, they have to abide with the rules there, too. And so aviation is very much an international focus. 
while in the US, we will have our rules at the FAA, and it can certainly different than the Europeans. It behooves everybody to collaborate with each other because you don't want to necessarily have one system in Europe and a totally different system in the US. Now airlines have to equip both systems and maintain both systems. And thankfully for many aviation systems, it is not that we are working towards one system or variants on one system. So you mentioned a little bit earlier about the practical nature of of drones and how they they can become more prevalent in everyday life. You spoke about the insurance industry. We touched upon uh, package delivery. As Jared and I were preparing, we, we mentioned a couple others. We were thinking about benefits possibly to agriculture, maybe security or defense. Just give us maybe one or two more examples of where in the near future you could see drones becoming a little bit more prevalent in everyday life. So agriculture is a big one. That is a, a use case that we often think up the top of our heads. One, because it's great, right? You can be great to take photos of your crops daily to assess the crop health and so you could better target managements of them. And there are companies doing that. Another example, and this is really where technology kind of gets to the fun part, is where I don't need to think of all the use cases. I need to think of clear ways to enable use cases. And so golf course management is a big one. Very similar to agriculture. Here's a drone in a box. Every morning it will take up. It'll take pictures of your golf course. How's the health of the grass? Where do you need to water? How are things growing, progressing in your rough? Construction sites, same deal. You have a drone in a box, comes up, it takes photos of how fast is the building being constructed? Can you go inspect welds, right, from yesterday? Really, where you'll see, I think, a lot of these is these either very mundane tasks that weren't necessarily high priority to have manned aircraft fly over, like golf course, but now they have that capability for potentially a daily observation of their facility, or where it's been dangerous um, or inefficient to put humans. So the checking the welds on a building in construction, checking power lines, where right now sometimes power lines are expected with helicopters. And you have helicopters with spinning blades near wires. That's, that's never good, but that's how they're inspected sometimes. And so having drones do there, we're taking humans out of harm's way while also increasing how often we do the inspections, ideally. Really fascinating to think about where we are today with drones and where we're going to be in the future. So thanks for giving us some insight there. We're going to transition into the lion's den, which, as you can imagine, is a segment dedicated to your experience at our good old, dear old state. Yeah. So, Andrew, first question. How has Penn State prepared you for your very impressive career that you've told us about today? So there's two things I can think about. One, while Penn State is a large institution, right, especially when people hear, oh, Penn State's too big, I never felt that. I felt that I had my group of professors, group of my students and classmates that I knew, and Penn State offered the opportunities for me to take advantage of what a large campus and a large institution can have. I remember my last semester... I had an idea and I was like, okay, I need like an independent study. And I was able to find a professor very easily, very quickly. And I did it, right? I had an idea and I got course credit for it. I was able to do some research on that. And so that was connected. And then more importantly, in some ways, it's very similar. But, you know, Penn State, when you take that opportunity, 
you can get a long leash with it, right? And so I was part of this senior capstone course called Sailplane in the aerospace department. So generally, and this is for most aerospace programs, the senior capstone is one of two things. Design a spacecraft or design a aircraft, space air. Penn State offers a third one called Sailplane, which is about gliders, along with having a more focus on actually getting your hands on and building things. So I took Sailplane, and some of the fun things about there is, one, we were helping to build out these airplane parts. We wanted to build this human-powered aircraft. And it was like, okay, well, here's the building materials. Go build it. Go figure it out. <laughs> and so there was times we had a building by hand, parts that were 20 feet long. And yeah, we did not do a good job sometimes. <laughs> but the course in many ways was set up to have us learn by these failures and also learn by our success. And so one of our success was over winter break one year, we were building, a, we built a, a propeller. And we needed to test this propeller and it was human power. So we built this tricycle monstrosity. It was a trike. And then in the front of it, there was this steel beam connected to it where we put our propeller. And so you could sit on this kind of recumbent bike and you pedaled and it would drive the propeller and that's how you moved forward. There actually wasn't like gears on the wheels or anything. And so we needed to one, figure out, okay, can we pedal harder fast enough to actually move? And what was the kind of aerodynamic performance of this propeller? So we're like, all right, how are we gonna do this? All right, we gotta, we gotta get on the road. All right, so we'll go to campus, we'll go at night, when there's not a lot of cars during winter break, when everyone's off campus. So we came back, I think, from Christmas real early, and we were up near the BJC and football stadium. This is the longest, straightest part of campus. And so you can see here, like, okay, one thing Sailplane was like, like I said, figure this out. You need to go test it. All right, so now practically, okay, where's something straight? We want to have it level so we don't go downhill and get a little more oomph. And so we figured that out, we measured it. And so the time was, okay, we have to do this test first. So like how much you know, force can we, how much does the bike weigh, how much force? And so we had to jerry-rig this scale. And so what we ended up doing, I somehow got the short, short straw or the honor to sit in the bike. And bike's a loose, very loose word here. And we attached the scale to the frame. And then I had one of my friends in the back. He had a, a truck. He laid at the back of his truck, tailgate down, holding the scale. And then someone driving in the front. <laughs> and we're like, slow it. Let's just, let's just go. And so we eke along five miles an hour at two in the morning next to the football stadium. And we're like, all right, we're good. And then things would break. Or, okay, we got this. And we were like, fix it, duct taping things together. Okay, no, we can't do that because that will bias the results. And so we're doing all these things, figuring out like, and it's, it's, I remember it being cold, but not too cold. But like, we're out there. And so the campus police come, what are you guys doing? We're like, oh, we're doing an aerospace experiment. And we show them and they are like, you could talk to our professor. And they go away, they come, they go away and they come back and they're like, you guys wearing helmets? Yep. And they're like, yeah, fine. And they left us be. 
and we did get results and we came back and we reported back to the class of the professor that ended up being part of our final project. And so like all of that, right? Everything from the campus cops being like, yeah, you could do this. Just don't be idiots or we'll come get you to having the, my classmates being down, like, yeah, let's totally go two in the morning and jerry rig this. And then also we had the resources as students to build the trike, to get the scale, right? Get all the parts. And it was up to us then to take that opportunity where we had these resources available to us and actually do something out of it. I think the true success of this story is I am at Lincoln Laboratory here talking to you guys today. The guy holding the scale is a flight test engineer at Boeing. And the guy driving the car is now an executive at Draper Laboratory involved in the next generation space shuttles. And so we look back and be like, yeah, we're still in aerospace doing the things we like. Something went right along the way. And we all do point towards that sailplane class as one of those things. Great hands-on experience. And when you I were telling it. that story, you know, what I was thinking, campus police, when is the campus police coming? I knew <laughs> that they were going to be part of that story. But when you look at one of your your favorite experiences at, at Penn State, I don't know if that was your favorite experience or if you've got something else, but can you give us a little bit of an insight into the top memory you've had? Well, I have to say I met my wife at Penn State, which is totally my favorite experience when I laid eyes on her, clearly. Good good answer. Good Correct answer. answer. I don't know if I have a favorite. I definitely tried to take advantage. So I did Paternoville, Nittanyville one time, just one time. That was certainly fun. I remember going to volleyball games i remember were actually a lot of fun i have a lot of memories of those i do remember sledding near bjc for any, some other things maybe with other aircraft parts for aerodynamics <laughs> was pretty awesome <laughs> um yeah i can't put on it's one all a great memory clearly but you do have to give us a little bit of a short story of how you met your wife at Penn State, because those are always great stories. Her roommate was a swimmer. And so at a swim team gathering, she brought her. And that is how we met. There wasn't much there. We started chatting, and then she stuck around. And now we're, we are married, and we are still Penn State fans. Excellent. Well, I too met my wife at Penn State. So that's that's the way to go. If you could go back and visit with the 18-year-old version of yourself as a freshman at Penn State, what advice would you share with that 18-year-old version of Andrew? I wasn't at Penn State when I was 18. So the advice would be, don't be an idiot. Just go to Penn State right there away. You go. <laughs> there was a lot of reasons why I didn't go to Penn State originally. Uh, they were certainly on the short list. I would say I was biased as many Pennsylvania high school students were. Everyone goes to Penn State, and I took that as a big negative. It certainly wasn't the main reason. It certainly flavored the way I looked at Penn State. I, I did so I did go to University of Maryland for my first two years. Big school, swim program, aerospace. So in many ways, similar on paper, but in practice, Maryland was not the best fit for me. 
go into Penn State. Penn State was an absolutely great fit for me. I had to go back. It's really saying, yes, you were right, Andrew. You do want a big school. You want to swim. You want to be in aerospace. Great. Don't change that. You know, picking a better fit for that would have been nice. So when you do run into that 17 or 18-year-old uh, student nowadays who's considering college, what do you tell them? Why should they go to Penn State? Well, my cousin, he is a freshman now. I'm fresh off these questions. My wife was very much, just go to Penn State. You'll love it. Don't just stop looking. <laughs> she's not I, wrong. I've, she's not wrong. And she's like, I know I'm not wrong. So yeah, just go to Penn State. He also was interested in, in engineering. A lot of it is, you know, I've heard tons of people, right? You get on campus, you feel it. I certainly wasn't that. I think a big fit is find, find those programs that really kind of excite you and, and go from there and not worry about it too much. Um, what's more important is having a, a school that will give you that flexibility because you will change your mind. What you think you like, you may not actually, and things that you hate, you may end up liking. I hated math in high school. Hated it. And I disliked math until I was a my fourth semester, and I took a math course, matrices at Penn State. I was like, I like this math. I get this math. This is cool <laughs> math. And then that led to me getting effectively an applied mathematics graduate degree, which still blows my mind when I say it, but <laughs> Penn State, I had that flexibility. I was able to transfer and I was able to figure out, okay, this is what I like. And because of the larger university, because of that research focus, I was able to find, you know, that patchwork of courses that worked for me. And it certainly laid a good foundation because I ended up getting my graduate degree, partly due to that really positive experience I had in that one math class. Excellent. And and how do you feel connected to the university these days? My wife and I, we are both lifetime members of the Alumni Association. I am currently sitting on the College of IST Alumni Society Board. We are the board. We're not a fundraising board. We are the other board that's more focused on the day-to-day -day local engagement, how to engage students, right? How to really bring the alumni together. That is most of my, my Penn State involvement. In years past, I've certainly had research collaborations with Penn State. I had a good experience of undergrad, and so I certainly reaching out and try to get those students and professors involved. But the alumni board is certainly the big one. I think for us, most exciting there is we, especially with COVID, right? How do you get engagement? How do you bring Penn Staters together? And so I remember months ago, we were like, let's just not do a Zoom happy hour. Just Let's not. I mean, we could do it, but like, we got to do something better. And I threw out, let's do something Instagrammable. Having, right, I have no clue what this is. And this is very kind of like, you're asking me like what I do, my day-to-day -day work. This is some of it, right? Let's just throw things on the wall and see what, what comes of it. I'm like, food. Let's make food on Instagram. And this ended up turning into the cooking classic, which is happening now. It's involved, I think, eight or nine different colleges across the university, and we're raising money for the food pantry. So I think we've raised over nearly $3,000 so far. Fantastic. I love the charitable tie as well and how you're pulling that together. So congratulations there. And 
Ross and I definitely want to thank you. I will say you have given us a glimpse into the future as it relates to drones. I think every time we see a drone now, we will think about you and uh, the work you're doing at MIT and, and certainly wish you continued success. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Seeing the other guests on this podcast to have myself as a more technical researcher without some of the, the glitz and the glam is very appreciated. And it was great chatting with you guys. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. It was a pleasure. Appreciate you coming on with us. And we always end with, we are Penn State. Lion Legacy is a Baruda production. If you enjoyed this Labor of Love podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform.